So uh, this might sound really controversial, and that's really not how I mean it, but my favorite parts of the Bible are the fictional parts. And that's not me making some kind of broad theological statement. Plenty of what we find in the Bible is fiction. It was intended to be fiction. It was written that way. Um, in the case of something like Ruth, it's answering a question about outsiders and insiders and who's in and who's not. Uh, in the case of Jonah, my favorite, uh, we're talking about universal salvation. And do we really want a God who is um, willing to save everybody? Doesn't that make it harder for us as insiders? And it's really ambiguous and I love it. To Jesus's parables, which are themselves a way of teaching via fiction. If Jesus had just given us um, a speech or basically an essay, would the prodigal son hit as powerfully as it does? Probably not. Today we're talking about another of my favorite fictive, fictive stories in scripture, and that is the book of Job. The book of Job is really interesting when you start to dig into it because scholars and translators have a lot to say about it from a literary standpoint. Um, and given that it's fiction, that makes a lot of sense that there was a lot going on in terms of how Job was created. Um, according to Robert Alter, one of my favorite uh, Old Testament scholars and translators of Hebrew, he believes that the author of Job was likely a polyglot, that they knew multiple languages. And you can see that sprinkled throughout the book, that uh, there was clearly knowledge of Hebrew, obviously, but also probably Aramaic, uh, some other languages as well. And it is a very literate book that way. Beyond that, the author is also an extraordinary poet uh, in that different characters use different poetic styles and they're noticeable. And we don't always see that in translation because that's really, really hard to translate. And especially when we're translating for the sake of religious truth and not necessarily uh, literary value, some of that gets missed. But it's worth keeping in mind as we examine Job because it's important. The literary styles that are being used are important. So how does Job begin? How does the book of Job begin? Uh, it begins famously with, there was a man named Job in the land of Uz, Uz, Uz. And Uz is not a place. Uh, and when I say that, I don't just mean it's not a place because we can't find it on our map today because it was an ancient place and we don't know where it is. Uz was, as Robert Alter described it, a never, never land, a place that existed in fairy tales. By opening your story saying that it's taking place in Uz, the audience knows that this is a fantastical story that is about to be told. This is a folk tale. This is a myth. And scholars believe that the story of Job was not this author's exact invention. That in many ways, the, the story of Job, as we know it, as it's been passed down to us, is a retelling of a folk tale. This is a common folk tale. It is a common archetype. The story of a man who has a wonderful life. He has everything you could possibly want. And then because of bets, because of wagers and um, jealousies and different things between the gods, he loses it in a bet between two gods. And then by the end of the story, because of Job's goodness, he gets everything back times two, basically. Um, he has a happy ending in which he gets all of his material possessions and even his family back once again. 
This version of the story, however, is being retrofitted and viewed through this theme, the, the lens of monotheism. Which is interesting because we see the fingerprints of the old folktale showing up again and again. So we have Job, a man who's from Uz, and he's a good man. Um, he is loved by his family. He gives sacrifices to God. He is a good person. And one day, God is with the council of gods, which is very strange, isn't it? Uh, if this is a story from a monotheistic religion, it doesn't really make sense that we have a council of gods. And the story doesn't really explain that. Uh, many scholars think that the council is just a vestige of the earlier polytheistic version of the story. Uh, some folks also like to interpret it as all that means is angels. And that could be. That could that could be. Um, perhaps maybe the author just needed someone for God to talk to for the story to work. We don't know. And in the midst of the council, there is Satan. And the story says that. Except Satan is not who you think Satan is in this story. This is not capital S Satan. This is not a person or rather a specific person. Satan here just means adversary or a stumbling block. Uh, you might recall that in the Gospels, Jesus actually calls Peter Satan at one point. And he's not calling Peter a devil. He's not telling him he's, he's a sinner. He's telling Peter, you are being an obstacle. You're being a roadblock. Get out of my way so that I can do the work of building the kingdom. Um, your, your attitude is a problem. So that's all it means, that among this council, there is someone who's an adversary. And this person certainly does not read as evil the way we would think of Satan, sort of. I mean, he does some pretty evil things, but more like a curmudgeon. This is a curmudgeon. Um, God and the council of gods are wandering earth and taking and assessing things. They're behaving the way an ancient landowner would have behaved. Uh, they're, they're taking a walk in the evening. And, and God makes a point of complimenting Job, saying how loyal Job is, how good Job is. And the adversary says, well, of course he's good. He has everything. Take all those wonderful things away and you'll find that Job isn't that good. And then in a moment that for us in particular, and for anyone who ascribes to ethical monotheism, which is to say a God who is good, the adversary and God essentially make a waiver where the adversary says, let me take everything away from Job. Let me take everything away and see if he curses you. And God gives permission to this adversary to do this. And God says only don't let him die. And so horrible things happen to Job. It's almost comedic. It's not meant to be, but it almost is. His children are all in a house and a wind comes by and blows it over. Um, all of his livestock die, all in quick succession, all these things happen. Basically everything that makes him happy, everything he loves is gone, um, with the exception of his wife and a few other people. It is very, very brutal. And Job says, what God giveth, God taketh away. And in a lot of renditions of Job, it stops there. We see Job is being patient, Job is being good, and Job is good. And Job is patient, but there's more to the story than that. Job gives a beautiful poetic lament and it is angry and it is emotional and it is in fact very relatable. Um, even as, as um, almost spectacular and unbelievable as the level of misfortune that Job encounters, 
His reaction to it is, is just sadness. You know, what have I done that this would happen? What have I done that, that I would have to uh, encounter this? And Job, at this point, he is stricken with a horrible skin disease. Things are horrible for him. He famously has three of his friends come visit. These three friends come to visit. And through this, we can surmise some things that are interesting that Job um, is a very international person. His friends are from all over the place. They have very unique names. Um, again, more evidence that the author is imposing upon Job this polyglot nature, this, this cultural knowledge, and the fact that this is in many ways a very cosmopolitan story. So anyway, his friends come. And in the poetry, everyone's speeches in Job are through poetry. We see this a lot in scripture. Um, his friends give speeches, poetic speeches. And scholars believe, and this is so fascinating, that the friends show up and are basically speaking in cliches. The, po the poetry becomes a lot more simple. You get a very basic A, B, A, B rhyme scheme that we don't necessarily see in English, but, but suddenly it's very, very simple. It's very basic. And they're basically speaking in platitudes. This isn't what happens, but a good way to think about it is it's as if one of them comes to Job and says, well, you know, Job, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And then the next shows up and says, well, you know, Job, God never gives you anything that you can't handle. And then the third comes and says, Job, everything happens for a reason. As if any of that solves anything. And it, it doesn't. It is, And it is insulting to this man who has gone through the horrible things he's gone through. His entire family is dead. He's lost everything. And now he has a horrible skin disease. He's miserable. And, and Job's reaction to this is not the stereotype of patient Job. He, he gets fired up. And suddenly the poetry, having been in this very unsophisticated, uh, cliched, mode for a while shifts and Job's poetry is extremely sophisticated. It's extremely beautiful, extremely literate. And he basically demands a trial from God. He basically says, put me before God, um, allow me to act as my own lawyer. And I can prove that I don't deserve this, that this is wrong, that the state of things is wrong. He's very fired up. And then what happens is interesting. It's almost like the story takes a complete shift. It's as if the friends were never there. Job's friends are gone. The adversary is also gone, never mentioned again. And God appears up out of the whirlwind. And I am aggressively paraphrasing, but basically says, I created the world. I was there before you. I will be here after you. I am incomprehensible to you. I am all that is and all that will be. There's so much you don't know, Job. So much that I cannot even explain to you. And after this, after this speech about God's omniscience, omnipresence, Job rejoices. Job rejoices and is thankful and praises God and is overjoyed and actually repents of having, having this little very understandable burst of anger and desire for this trial after which god restores job's fortunes as i said basically times two he gets another family that's even bigger and better than the first one he has more things he has many friends he lives to be 140 years old 
And the question we run into when we reach this ending is that Job is, and is, it is, and is always presented as a story about why bad things happen to good people. And it's really easy to, to come to that end and think, wow, we didn't really resolve anything. We didn't answer the question of why bad things happen to good people. None of this makes sense. We haven't solved anything. The ending in which Job gets everything once again, is almost kind of terrible. Well, what about those children who died before? What, what about the livestock before? It feels very callous. And, and again, it doesn't feel like the ethical monotheistic God that we know, the God who loves us. And I think there's a couple ways to look at it. The first is that at the beginning, I mentioned fiction. That what's so great about the story of Job is that this author, this clearly brilliant author, took a folktale and poetic language and, and language in general and took all these things and just worked through these ideas just worked through them and maybe didn't come to a perfect conclusion right away, but used fiction as a way to play with ideas in a way that is so much more interesting than we're ever going to encounter in an essay um, or, or in a, um, you know, if these had just been speeches. It's using art as a way to explore something really complicated. And then in many ways, looking at this, we can see how monotheistic thought evolved we can almost start to see a history of not just this author, but the people who loved this story, working through it and trying to figure out what these things mean. Why do bad things happen to good people? Is God a good God? Because remember, they came out of a polytheistic world where the gods were not good. Um, they were selfish and the gods essentially just existed to explain natural phenomenon. Lightning exists because of Zeus. We give sacrifices to him, not because we love him, but because we don't want lightning to hit our stuff. That's what's happening there. And this author is, is trying to move away from that. And that's a really fascinating, fascinating thing. But I think, I think the good ending of Job is not the ending where he gets all of his stuff back. It's a little bit before that, when God shows up. What we learn from that moment and the theology that um, the author and the community that this story sprang out of is working through is understanding that when bad things happen, God shows up. When bad things happen, we do not have a God who is unfeeling. We do not have a God who doesn't care about our suffering. We have a God who's complex and omniscient, and we are just beginning to scratch the surface of who that God is. But ultimately, what, what Job is starting to get to is that God loves us. That is not why these bad things are happening. That's why the adversary disappears, because it doesn't make sense. That's why the cliches don't work because it's not true. It isn't true. God loves us. And, and the thing that Job is so happy about is that Job, by the end of the story, has a relationship with God. Whereas at the beginning of the story, when Job is offering sacrifices, it is transactional. By the end of the story, it has actually moved to a place where it's no longer transactional. It is a sincere, loving relationship. And Job and us, are going to be able to use fiction, are going to be able to use art, are going to be able to use the gifts God gave us to explore those relationships. Amen.